This is a reading from the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, found on page 807 of the Pew Bibles. Hear these words from the book that we love. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she found that she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we're continuing our series, I Believe, which is on the Apostles' Creed. We're in our third week in this series, and uh, last week we talked about God's love for us and His continued faithfulness to His people. And this week we'll see the main example of His faithfulness to His people is by sending God the Son, Jesus, to live amongst us and die for us. And as far as the Apostles' Creed is concerned, this is the second, but it's also the largest section of the Creed. And it begins like this. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So today what I would like to talk about is the virgin conception of our Savior, Jesus, or the virgin birth as it's more commonly called. So in this sermon, I just want to show us how the Apostles' Creed reminds us of the lengths that God will go to save us and be with us. That God actually goes to great lengths to save you. God goes to great lengths to be with you. And so if you have your Bibles, we're in Matthew 1 today. And we're going to look at three things in particular. We're going to look at the miracle of our Savior's birth. We're going to look at the purpose of our Savior's life. And then lastly, the implications for our Savior's people. So miracle, purpose, implications. Here we go. The miracle of our Savior's birth. Let's look at verse 18. We're going to read this and it's not even Christmas. All right. So first, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Jesus' birth, and I think we have to think about this, particularly if you have a church background, you may not see this as very odd, but we do have to think about this. Jesus' birth is nothing short of a miracle. And it's particularly a miracle in two ways. First, the incarnation, which is God becoming flesh. That's a the fancy word we use for, and when we talk about God becoming flesh is incarnation. And then we also have to think about that what's also a miracle is Jesus is born without original sin, which is fascinating. And um, yeah, you may not know what original sin is, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. But first, let's talk about miracles. 
The incarnation, God the Son taking on flesh through the virgin birth, is a miracle. And we have to think about this, like, in our world, our understanding of the natural and supernatural is largely shaped by the Enlightenment period, which is in the 17th and 18th century in the Western Hemisphere. So there, when we talk about that and we talk about our world, we see, like, the natural world is all that there is. And things like miracles or the supernatural are just superstition. Those are like chains of religion that we have to shackle off because all that we really have is what we can see in front of us. So, a person who is largely, as an example, a person who is largely influenced by the Enlightenment was one of the founders of America, Thomas Jefferson. You may have heard of him. He's on the nickel. Is that right? Raise your hands if that's right. Is he on the nickel? Okay, good. Three of you have confirmed that he's on the nickel. Thomas Jefferson, what he did is he compiled this religious work, and he called it the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. What we more commonly call it is the Jefferson Bible. What Thomas Jefferson decided was that all this stuff about miracles and the supernatural and resurrection, people coming back to life, and he's like, look, that's all superstition. So anything that couldn't be explained naturally, what he did is he cut it out of the Bible. And so, and he said, here's the Bible, the Jefferson Bible. It's all the things that can be explained naturally. So unsurprisingly, miraculous things like the virgin birth were cut out. And many people in the Western world treat the natural and supernatural world, or natural and supernatural the same way. Unless it can be explained naturally or replicated in a lab, it never happens. Or it can't happen. So this idea that a virgin girl in the first, cent- in first century Palestine bore the Son of God through the work of the Holy Spirit, we can't replicate that in a lab. We can't explain that naturally so it didn't happen. So people will say that this event was kind of made up, this story was made up for all sorts of reasons to make the Bible look good, to make Christians look good, but primarily to make Jesus look more than, to look more than he actually was. He was just a man. But as, as I thought about this and I'm studying this, I'm like, I'm not sure why you would tell this story if it wasn't true. It's not like, oh, well, back then everybody believed in virgin births. It's like, no, they know how babies were made. Just like we know how babies are made. They knew that too. If you don't know, that's a good conversation for your parents later. But it doesn't make sense why you would add, put this story in the Bible if it wasn't true. Because what it does is it brings more questions than does answers. And so because of that, sometimes the Western world or even Western Christians have been embarrassed by it. So if we have here, if you look back to, think back to the first sermon where I talked about core conviction and preferences, it's this circle uh, we should have on the screen. Do we have that, guys? It should be three circles. Yeah. Some well-meaning Christians have tried to push the virgin birth out of the core circle to conviction, and some have even tried to go preference. So like, it's not core that we believe in the virgin birth. It's a conviction. Like some of us think it's really important, some of us don't. 
Or it's a preference, like it's not actually backed up by the Bible in any way, but, you know, you can choose to believe it if you want or not. But the virgin birth is core. And it's a miracle. So, N.T. Wright, in his book, Jesus and the Victory of God, which is a, a huge work, you don't have to go ahead and read all of it, I'll just summarize the part about, he talks about miracles. But what he does is he talks about how there's several words in the New Testament that talk about miracles and the supernatural. And he says this, These words do not carry, as the English word miracle has sometimes done, overtones of invasion from another world or outer space. They indicate rather that something has happened within what we would call the natural world, which is not what would have been anticipated, and which seems to provide evidence for the active presence of an authority, a power at work, not invading the created order as an alien force, but listen to this, but rather enabling it to be more truly itself. Ancient people didn't see the natural and supernatural world as, this, dis, they're as distant between each other, as there's this thick barrier between them. No, they saw them as close together, only divided by this thin veil. And often they would overlap with each other. And what N.T. Wright is saying is that miracles aren't this invasion into the natural world. Miracles are works of God designed to enable the world to be more truly itself. The virgin birth or the incarnation is the triune God enabling the world to be more truly itself. If you look back to the first pages of the Bible, God desired to dwell with humanity. He desired to dwell with man on earth. And when he created the heavens and the earth, there's no sin, there's no suffering, there's no shame. And his presence was a welcomed one as he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. However, Adam and Eve's sin makes God's presence go from from welcome to unwelcomed. So after they sin and they eat from the tree God told them not to eat from, Genesis 3, 8 says this, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the, cool, in the garden in the cool of the day, which should have been like, yes, God's coming. He's coming to hang out with us. He's going to, talk, he's going to spend time with us. But no, what did they do? And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Because of their sin, they became ashamed And they hid from God's presence. And because of their sin, God had to judge and punish them for it. And he banished them from the garden. But listen to me. But even since that point, God hasn't stopped trying to make his presence be a reality. He hasn't stopped making his presence with mankind be real and felt and true. So in the virgin birth, God the Son takes on human flesh so that as fully God and fully man, God might once again walk with man and his wife. Man and woman, mankind. This time not in the safe, sinless place of the garden, but in our harsh dangerous, scary, shame-filled 
sin-filled world. It's a miracle that God does this because it enables the world to be truly itself, to be a place where God walks with people. Because of Adam and Eve, though, because of Adam's sin in particular, we're all born with sin, which we might call original sin. And this is throughout the Bible, like in places like Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In sin I was conceived. So when confronted with the presence of God, what happens is instead of us welcoming God, like Adam and Eve welcome God in Genesis 1 and 2, we, we're Genesis 3 people who naturally run and hide from God, who naturally reject God. We're naturally against the things of God. And so Ephesians 2 says, without putting our faith and trust in Jesus, you and I are by nature children of wrath. God must judge. We deserve to be judged. We deserve to be punished because we have the stain of original sin. So in order to enable us to be truly ourselves, God had to take on flesh. God the Son had to take on flesh to come and save us. So Romans 5, 12 says this, says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, speaking of Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, this is a really interesting line when Paul says because all sinned. What he does not mean is that at some point in your life you're going to sin. That's what a heretic named Pelagius said, and the church emphatically rejected that in the 5th century. Said no. What Paul is saying is, that we, Adam's descendants, were actually in Adam. We were united to Adam when he sinned. So his sin became our sin. You recognize that? That's not, oh, well, people are really good. And, you know, I, I love that. Like when somebody does something wrong, they're like, well, this is not who I am. I'm not this kind of person. It's like, not according to the Bible. You are that way. Well, I'm not, I'm not a thief. I, I mean, I, I don't, you know, it was a bad moment. Like, no, actually, like, that's deep within your heart because you were in Adam when Adam sinned. Now you have original sin. You have the stain of that in you. But Jesus is fully God and fully man without the stain of original sin. Not only did Jesus never sin, he wasn't even born with it. So only he can truly save sinners. See, we needed someone without original sin to save us who have original sin. And when we put our faith in Jesus, we go from being in Adam to what the New Testament says, we go to being in Christ. So unless you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you are in Adam completely. But when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, God gives you the Holy Spirit and you become united not to Adam's work, but Christ's work. And if that doesn't stir you up, I don't know what will. 
Because although your, our nature might still be tainted by original sin and will never be completely free until we're with Jesus in eternity, we are freed from God's judgment on our sin and also from seeing God's presence as unwelcomed to welcomed again. It all comes full circle. And the early church preached about the virgin birth because of what it says about God. They preached the virgin birth not as proof that Jesus was truly God. They believed that. But that Jesus was truly human. It goes to show, it shows us the great lengths that God will go to save us and be with us. See, in our world, we probably need the opposite, right? If this was written in our time, we probably, and what we do probably preach now, we probably would say, hey, we all agree that Jesus was a man, but we need to show that he is fully God. For the early church, it was like, no, we believe that he's God, but we have to show that God would want to be man. And that's why it's in the Apostles' Creed. Heretics like the Docetists said that Jesus only appeared to be human. And the early Christians go, no, 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 no. He was human. Because what the Docetists thought is like, they, back then they would say like, well, the natural is bad. And Christians fall into this too, right? The natural world is bad. We got to get out of here. No, that's heresy. God created the world and it's good. Our bodies are good. Tainted, yes. Broken, yes, but good. But those statists and other heretics said, no, the body's bad, the natural world is bad. So Jesus couldn't have been God in human flesh because that means he would be bad. But the virgin birth, what it does is it affirms the goodness of God's natural world that God created the world and desires to enable the world to be truly itself. The incarnation also challenges us in our post-enlightenment mindset, doesn't it? Because Jesus was both fully God, sorry, fully man and fully God, it shows that the natural and supernatural world aren't divided by this thick barrier. They aren't distant from each other. They constantly and often overlap with one another. And so Jesus was fully God and fully man, and that might be hard for us to think about, but there's a good analogy that the church father Origen described as the miracle of the incarnation. He said the miracle of the incarnation is like putting an iron into the fire. So it doesn't stop being iron, but it also, he says, has become holy fire since nothing else is discerned in it except fire. And he says it's because if you took the iron out of the fire and you grabbed it, you would know, you would feel the heat. So he says, if anyone were to attempt to touch it or handle it, he would feel the power, not of iron, but of fire. It doesn't stop being iron, but it's also fire. So Benjamin Myers sums it up this way. He says, Jesus is truly human, nothing but iron. He's truly divine, nothing but fire. Jesus is so permeated by the divine presence that every part of his humanity is filled with divine energy. He's born of a woman. He's conceived by God's spirit. He's human. He's divine. He's iron. He's fire. 
The true miracle, listen to me, the true miracle of the virgin birth isn't simply that a virgin was able to have a child. That is miraculous in itself. But the true miracle of the virgin birth is that God didn't give up on you or me, but instead became like you and me to save you and me. That's the true miracle that God didn't give up on us when he easily could have. And so we see the miracle of our Savior's birth, but there's also the purpose of his life, which we get clues of this in the passage. So look at verse 19. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Joseph, it's like, Joseph's a good guy. He doesn't know how this baby got here. He's like, it wasn't me. Again, ask your parents about that. But he says, all right, well, I'm just going to divorce her, which betrothal back then was much more official than it is now, like an engagement. He says, I'm going to do it quietly because I don't want to put her to shame. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The purpose of Jesus' life is revealed in his two names. The first one being Jesus. Jesus back then was a very popular name. Very popular. So every once in a while, like, oh, we found these bones in the, on the tombs. It says, Jesus. Jesus, I guess, didn't rise from the dead. It's like, no, that's a very popular name. It'd be like John today. It's the Hebrew version. The Hebrew version would be Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. And it points back to Exodus where God saved his people from slavery to Egypt. But in this Jesus, born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit, God will what? He'll save his people not from Egypt, but slavery to sin. He will save his people from their sins. It's the first purpose of Jesus, to save sinners. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 15, and this verse like played in my head like, as like, maybe you guys don't remember this. I do way back in the day, like records getting stuck and just kind of repeating. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of, of full acceptance, Paul says, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of, who I, of whom I am the foremost. The incarnation is both diagnosis and prognosis. It tells us what the problem is and how to fix it. Like, you don't go to the doctor to tell you just what's wrong, right? You can also go to the doctor to tell you how to fix it. Or if you're friends with somebody in the medical community, you text them about it, and they help you fix it. That's no one here. But imagine how frustrated you'd be if you went to your doctor with a sore throat and a fever, and your doctor took a look at you and said, well, you have strep throat. Have a great day. And just walks out. It's like you gave me the prognosis, or the diagnosis, excuse me, but you never gave me the prognosis. You never told me how to fix it. You got to write me a script for some amoxicillin, man. Or woman. See, with the name Jesus, the angel tells us what's wrong with us and our world and how to fix it. 
We receive diagnosis and prognosis. What's wrong? Sin. What do we need to fix it? Our Savior Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. It's not just that Jesus just came into the world to save you from your sin. But listen to this. Jesus had to come into the world to save you from your sin. You hear the difference? It's not a historical reality, which is, it's true, it happened. But he had to do it. Otherwise, you would have the diagnosis with no prognosis. The doctor would just leave the room. The ultimate source of our and the world's, or your and the world's troubles is sin. It permeates everything. And until we're honest with ourselves about our diagnosis, the prognosis won't help us. It doesn't matter if the doctor tells you you have cancer. If you're not honest with that and start doing, getting treatments, what's the point? Why even go to the doctor? It's like AA or Alcoholics Anonymous, right? Step one is about letting go. You have to admit you have a problem before you can begin to seek assistance. You need to admit you're powerless that it allows you to break the cycle of addiction that you've been stuck in. It's similar for sin and everything it touches. You have to admit that you're the problem before things get better. Unless you admit that you're the problem in your marriage, that it's your selfishness, it's your unwillingness to change, it's your pride, and you stop blaming your spouse, your marriage can't be saved. It can't. You have to admit that you're the problem. You have to admit that you're powerless. Unless you admit that the biggest detriment to your kids following Jesus is you, it's your unwillingness to ask for forgiveness when you mess up, It's your lack of talking about faith at home with your kids. It's because you prioritize school, sports, and friends over church. You can't expect your kids to follow Jesus if you're not showing them that this is a priority. The biggest detriment to your kids is not what culture is pushing. It's not what's being said in the schools. The biggest detriment to your kids following Jesus is you, their parents. Or unless you admit that it's your laziness around studying is why you didn't do well in school, you're not going to get better. Or some of us, like, my GPA in college wasn't great. I could blame all my professors if I wanted to. But the fact of the reality is I was playing video games when I should have been studying. So by God's grace, I course corrected that in grad school, in seminary. Unless you admit that it's your anti-authority impulse is why you don't want to do what your boss asks you to do, you're never going to change. See, you have to admit that you're the problem. It's your selfishness. It's your pride. It's your anti-authority impulse. That's the problem. Your boss is the boss. They can ask you whatever they want. They're paying you. Our culture has a real problem with victimhood, a real problem with it. I'm not saying that some people aren't victims, but this idea like we all are like, everybody wants to fight for why I'm a victim. Someone is always to blame. And that goes all the way back to when we were in Adam. It was the serpent, God. It was the woman, God. Not me. Listen, there are legit things that happened to you that were outside your control. Legit things. And some of you are victims. But what Jesus wants to do with your life is turn you from a victim into a victor. He wants to change that. 
He doesn't want you to continue to blame your problems on someone else. He instead wants you to, he wants me to start seeing my sin as the problem with the world. That I need to admit that I'm powerless. I need to grab a hold of Jesus and that he had to do what he did for me. He had to do it because I couldn't do it for myself before I can start down the road of change. Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I don't know, care who you are, you're not Paul. And Paul is saying, I'm the worst sinner. See, I need to accept the diagnosis and receive the prognosis and take those steps. I need to repent of my sin. I need to turn to Jesus and let him change my life. But the other purpose of Jesus is coming. And Jesus' life is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus isn't just a doctor who gives you a diagnosis and walks out. Jesus proves that God will go to great lengths to save us and to be with us. See, the name Jesus was very popular, but no one named their kid Emmanuel. Why? N.C. Wright says, perhaps because it would say more about the child than anyone would normally dare. It means God with us. Despite the diagnosis of our sin, Jesus, God the Son, shows us that the natural, supernatural aren't distant from each other with a thick barrier between them. God isn't a distant God, only occasionally interacting with his world. No, he's a God who comes down to our level. He's willingly born of a virgin. He'll constantly get questions about that throughout his ministry. People will doubt his ministry. People will throw shade at his ministry because he was born of a virgin, yet he willingly chose to do that. He's conceived by the Holy Spirit. He willingly takes on human flesh with all of its pain, with all of its brokenness, Like, I'm sure Jesus got pimples when he was a teenager. He took all that on to bring God's presence back to us, to reestablish the connection we lost because of the sin of Adam. And you and I are left with one question. How will we respond to God's presence when God is walking in our world? Do we welcome him or do we hide from him? Because God with us, Emmanuel, God with us, is bad news for those who reject our Savior. But it's the best news for those who receive him. And lastly, there's some implications here for for us. Look at verse 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph realizes the implications of this, and it's real simple. He obeys. He obeys. And I've said this a thousand times, and I'll say it a thousand more times. Delayed obedience is disobedience, and Joseph knows that. He's like, I'm not going to put this off. I'm going to go right now. I'm going to take this woman with my wife, and I'm going to marry her, and I'm going to call. As soon as he's born, his name is Jesus. There's implications. Joseph understands that. And we need to understand that too as God's people. What are the implications here for us? Listen, there's two other places in Matthew's gospel where we're promised 
that God the Son is with us. Two other places. There's one, this place right here in chapter 1, but there's two other places. You know what the first one is? Matthew 18. Matthew 18, Jesus talks about what to do if someone sins against you. He even talks about involving church discipline when they have to address that sin. And then he ends with this proverb-like statement in Matthew 18, 20. He says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am, there am I among them. Jesus is with his people even when we address sin. Jesus isn't a prude. He doesn't hide from sin. He enters into the discussion with us, into the exposure with us, into the forgiveness with us, because then he enables us to forgive each other. When we admit our sin to God because of what Jesus has done for us and that he forgives us, when other sin comes down the open and somebody offends me or somebody hurts me, we can forgive others because God and Christ forgave us. And you see how that fights against victimhood? It's like, Jesus is with me so I can forgive those who hurt me. doesn't mean I, don't, I forget, right? Like, memory is wise. It's helpful. But I need to forgive. I need to let go of that. But also at the end of the gospel, after his resurrection ascension, before, or sorry, after his resurrection, before his ascension, he tells his disciples, hey, go out, make disciples and baptize them. And then listen to the last verse of Matthew 20. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. At the end of the service today, we're going to pray for the Liberty Bristol launch team as they begin to gather and move toward planting a church in Bristol a year from now. They'll still be with us. We're not launching them to start weekly worship. We're launching them to start gathering and telling their friends and families and neighbors. And I put, I put a picture up here of our, when this happened for us. Many of you will look at this, this picture and you'll barely know anyone. Some of you know everyone. We plant churches because more people need to know that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. More people need to know that God is with us and somebody sent us and we send others. That's why we were sent as a core team to gather, and if this, that eventually became Liberty Northeast, and Lord willing, we'll eventually have a Liberty Bristol. But as we go, we always have to remember as we go, as things change, as there might be pain around that. Like, listen, when I see the list of the people who are on the Liberty Bristol launch team, my heart breaks. I was on the verge of tears this week because they're lovely, lovely people, some of our best and brightest. Not all of our best and brightest, don't worry. But some, but God will be with us, he says. Jesus says, I'll be with you always. And God comes to be with us, and Jesus stays with us so that God can be with others who need him too. And I'll just point this out about the Liberty Bristol launch team. None of them came to Liberty Northeast saying, I want to plant a church in Bristol. None of them. None of them. Not even Pastor Kyle. 
He came, I want to plant a church. Where do you want to go? I don't know. All right, man, let's pray about it. Let's ask the Lord where you want to go. But something about what Jesus has done for us stirs us up and wants that we want to give that to others. We want others to experience that. And Jesus says, I'll be with you. Don't worry, I'll be with you. As hard as it's challenging it might be, I will be with you. So look, as, we, we, as I close today, just two challenges. First, here's what I want you to do this week. All right, if you can take some homework home, look at the biggest concern or stressor in your life right now and take that before God and ask him to diagnose you. Say, God, how am I the problem here? God, I'm really stressed out about my finances. What am I doing wrong? What, what's, how is it my problem? What did I do? Oh, my boss should pay me more. Oh, they didn't give me, you know, uh, like, they didn't give me a raise this year. I, oh, my bonus was smaller than it should have been. It's like, okay, yeah. How are you the problem? Well, God, my marriage isn't what I would like it to be. Okay, how are you the problem? God, my kids are really disobedient, and they, they prioritize all these things, but, but you, and what should I do? How are you the problem? And ask God for forgiveness and rely on Jesus to help you change, to be with you as you succeed, and you'll fail a lot, but Jesus will be with you. And lastly, here's my challenge to all of us. Let's be people of prayer. John Tyson is this pastor in New York. He says this oftentimes to people. He says, hey, to, to pastors particularly, he says, hey, why do you have a kid's ministry? Well, because we want families at our church. Like, okay. Why do you have a youth ministry? Well, because we want teenagers at our church. He says, and why don't you have a prayer ministry? Don't you want God at your church? And I, like, put the theology behind, like, God is with us. I get all that. Don't worry. Like, I'm a good, reformed Calvinist. I get all that. But what he's saying is, if you want God to be at your church, you need to be intentional about welcoming him into it. God is with us, absolutely. But the Bible is full of people reminding God of his promises to his people. We should be okay to say, God, you said you'd be with us. Be with us here. Not because he forgets, but because it shapes us as we do it. So let's be sure to be intentional about welcoming God in. Welcome him into your own life. Welcome him in. Let's invite him in to be with the Liberty Bristol team. Let's invite him here at Liberty Northeast by being a people of prayer. But God has gone to great lengths to save you and be with you. And so as we stand now, we're going to say the Apostles' Creed, and I want you to think about that. I want you to think about that when we get to this line, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. I want you to think about that, that God went to great lengths to save you and be with you. So let's stand, and we'll say it together. So Christians, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, 
the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of body, and life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Father, thank you for going to great lengths. Jesus, thank you for going to great lengths as God the Son to, be, to save us and to be with us. Help us not ignore the diagnosis or the prognosis of our sin and be with us as we seek to be a people on mission and a people of prayer. And look, if you're here today and you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus, I just need you to be, be very clear with you. You are in Adam. Move, please, to be in Christ. Give your life over to Jesus. Ask him for forgiveness and rest on him to save you and him alone. And we thank you, Father, for just your love and your mercy and your grace. As we come to the table, we're reminded of all that in Jesus and sacrificed for us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.